Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Sophie, welcome to the pod. Hi, very excited to be here. We very excited to have you. Actually, thank you so much for reaching out to us uh, and identifying your extremely specific and relevant experience. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's one of those things where I have a job that is specific enough that I don't it doesn't feel relevant in a lot of situations. And when it does, I'm like, oh, I could talk about this. I can help here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you, for our dear gentle listeners, uh, explain in your own words the nature of what it is you do? Yeah. So this is going to sound really complicated, but I promise it's not. So I am, my full job title is I am a capital mitigation specialist for the Federal Public Defender's Office. I know, which sounds terrifying. Basically, what that means is I work at a federal on the federal level. I work at the Federal Defender's Office in Missouri. Uh, and capital means that I work with folks who have been sentenced to death and are on death row uh, exclusively. And mitigation specialist sort of refers to um, looking for mitigating evidence. And essentially what that means in the in the simplest terms is that it is my job um, to not excuse what my clients have done. You know, I have clients that are likely innocent. I have clients that are very much not innocent, uh, who sort of are open to, with the fact that they committed the crime they have been convicted of. And so it's not my job to excuse that. It's sort of my job to help people understand whoever's making a decision about my client, whether that be the Supreme Court or the governor or a judge, to sort of help them understand how my client got to that place. So my job is not to excuse the behavior, rather to explain how my client could have come to a place that this crime occurred. This might be a very basic question, but I'm wondering when someone is on death row, someone is in in your um, care is probably the wrong word. What would you say? In your, in I think your... that's my background is in social work. So that word feels right for me. OK, great, great. Mm -hmm. um, when someone is in your care, is it is that information the context? Like, I don't really understand legally how the context actually impacts what happens to them next. You know, like how. Is it just how that judge feels, how that person in in the position of deciding feels? Or is there a measure of, I don't know, I don't know the words because I'm not a capital litigator specialist. <laughs> no, this is a great question. So um, a very brief rundown of sort of the procedural history. So for folks that don't know, the death penalty as it looks in the United States right now came about in 1976. There was a brief period from 1972 to 1976 that we didn't have a death penalty in the United States. And the reason for that was that in 1972, the judges in a case called Furman v. Georgia decided that death penalty statutes as they existed in the U.S. were too arbitrary and therefore could not clear the cruel and unusual punishment hurdle. 
So Mm. for four years, we didn't have a death penalty. And in 1976, uh, Georgia again came back to the Supreme Court in a case called Greg v. Georgia. And they said, we think we have figured out how to make the death penalty less arbitrary and thereby clear this bar. And the way that they did that is they created bifurcated trials. So this is now the norm in every state. If your state has the death penalty on the books and people are being tried capitally, then the case has two phases. And the first one is what you're used to seeing on TV where witnesses come in and describe the crime and experts speak to the jury and the jury decides if the person is guilty or innocent. Once that has happened, if they have been found guilty of a capital crime where death penalty is on the table, then they go to a second phase of the trial called the penalty phase. This is the same attorneys and the same jury. And at this point, it is the role of the state to prove what are called aggravating factors. And aggravating factors look different in different states. They can be things um, as vague as this was an especially heinous crime, which one might argue that that would apply to most, if not all murders. Again, they're super vague. And then there are what's called mitigating factors, which the defense seeks to prove. And this is things like Mm -hmm. severe mental illness, intellectual disability, a history of trauma. Again, it's sort of just trying to contextualize the person's life. And that phase of trial is where the jury will weigh whether the aggravators that the state has proven outweigh the mitigation that defense has proven. Unfortunately... What we see uh, is that the majority of folks that end up on death row are not there because they are the worst and scariest people. They are often there because they are poor and they got state appointed attorneys who are largely wonderful people who are incredibly overworked and under resourced. Mm -hmm. And so by the time Mm -hmm. I get to a case, Clients are now on their sort of final stage of appeals. They're at the federal level. Most of my clients Mm -hmm. have already been on death row for 10 to 20 plus years. Um, And it's now my job to try to do the mitigation that unfortunately was often not done or not done adequately at trial because the attorneys either didn't know what to look for or they just didn't have the resources to try to um, find this information. Wow. Mm Mm-hmm. A, in the fact that, like, I had no idea that that was the process, which is a little overwhelming to just not have known that that's how things work. For sure. Uh, I would love to, I I do want to tell you that, like, it is not unusual for people to not understand. And we can talk about this later, but I think it is somewhat by design. It it certainly behooves mm -hmm. the system if not everyone understands what's happening and is sort of paying attention to how these trials play out. Yeah, love to go against the system here inside of this podcast. We'll teach you. <laughs> Sophie will teach you. <laughs> um, um, I have uh, a question that is of narrow focus, if that's okay. It might be a little of a sidestep from the track that we're currently on. Yeah, go for it. But I'm just thinking about how it makes me... It makes my skin crawl when I'm watching a show and like every single microphone that anyone who's anxious ever approaches feeds back to let us like know that they're, you know, experiencing anxiety. Uh-huh. Um, regardless of the 
technical aptitude of the front of house engineer who's in charge of the sound system, you know, or like when people clearly don't know how to play guitar, but they're kind of like miming it. And I'm like watching their hands. Mm -hmm. Like, ah, this is not real. Are there specific aspects of this episode that like you uh, found ground your gears? Were there specific things that jumped out at you and screamed like, this is not how it happens? That is a phenomenal question. Uh, (laughs) I would say, uh, so in the contrary, one of the, I actually really love this episode. One of the reasons I love this episode uh, has to do in large part with Brad Dourif's uh, portrayal of Boggs as a character. Mm -hmm. I do think... So something that I find comes up a lot, especially in our sort of more popular television procedurals when we're talking about folks on death row, we often see them portrayed as boogeymen, right? They are sort of like, they are terrifying people who are either incredibly violent and unhinged and or they are so intelligent and manipulative that no one has any hope of interacting with them, right? In a way that feels grounded or equal. And I think there is some of that. There is certainly some manipulation in the way that Boggs interacts with uh, Scully in particular. I did find for the most part that even that feels somewhat grounded in his sort of desperation um, Mm -hmm. to avoid where he is going. And one of the things in particular that I think really resonates for me, um, sort of counter to your question, Jenny, is I... The first client that I lost, so I've had this job for five years and I've lost four clients. Mm. And the first client that I lost, um, by the time I was working on his case, he had already had a a warrant. In other words, he had already had an execution date once. Mm -hmm. And when that date came, he got a stay, but not until they had taken him into the room and put him on the table um, no. yeah. And, and that's something that Boggs talks about, right? He has had that experience. This character has had that experience where he's already been in the chamber and got a last minute stay. Uh, mm-hmm. it certainly doesn't happen as often anymore. I don't think because at least where I am in Missouri stays are not forthcoming very often. Uh, mm. but I appreciated sort of the portrayal of that trauma. And I think, yeah. It, that part especially really, really rung true to me to to sort of what my client's experience had been. How many states currently have the option of the death penalty on the table? So there are 27 states right now that have capital punishment in some capacity still on the books as a legal option. Now, there are states like Pennsylvania that have a moratorium. So while they there is not anything legally sort of standing in the way. Um, I mean, I shouldn't say that the moratorium is standing in the way, but a governor could overturn that Mm -hmm. Uh, much in the way that when Biden took office, he had sort of, you know, run on this idea that he was going to get rid of the death penalty federally. And what he Mm -hmm. did was put a moratorium in place. And a lot of people, including myself, were very unhappy with that as an option because it feels like a, very weak substitute for abolishing it outright. It would be much easier for an incoming president to just end that moratorium than it would be to try to put the law back in place if they took it off the books. Mm. So right now there are 27 states. 
um, that have it on the books. And it's probably let it's about 10, maybe a couple less that are actively um, executing folks. And I happen to be in Missouri. Uh, and we currently have a governor who is, you know, going to term out soon. And he is sort of doing what Trump did at the end of his presidency and just trying to clear the row. <sighs> are there people who do a version of what you do? in states where the death penalty is not on the table? I don't even know what kind of question this is, Sophie. No, that's a great question. (laughs) Um, So my office, I work in a capital habeas unit, which means we are working with folks on death row who are in their habeas, federal habeas level of appeals. Uh, There are, I think, 11 or 12 of us in the Western District of Missouri but we're in a larger larger federal defender office. And that larger office includes people who are representing folks at trial. And a lot of those aren't capital mm. trials, right? It's like mm. white collar stuff, fraud, gun charges. Uh, and they also have investigators who work with them at the time of trial. And particularly when it comes to sentencing to sort of help contextualize um, a client's story. I mean, I think one of the things that is most important whenever I'm meeting with a client's family and sort of explaining my role, what I often tell them is that when a decision maker is looking at one of our clients, they are looking at the case, right? In a, in the most abstract term, our client for a lot of people is nothing more than a docket number and a stack of black and white paper that says this is what the person did. Mm-hmm. It's really important. And there is, there are more and more states sort of trying to push to make this a regular thing that happens at the state level. Cause of course we're federal. So we're handling federal cases. There mm-hmm. are investigators at state PDs, but again, funding is an issue. So they can't always do the amount of work that we can do. But the goal of my work always is to try to help whoever is making a decision about my client see them as the full person they are rather than just this black and white pile of paper in front of them. Wow. What was your path here? Like uh, you said you you're in social work. Mm-hmm. How like can you just tell us a little bit about the journey that got you here? Is this something that you know, you had interest in? Uh, doing or or is it something that like you're picked out for because of a skill set that you particularly have like how I sort of uh believe it or not I sort of stumbled into this by accident so when I was in my first year of my master's of social work program MSW programs have you in field placements for about 20 hours a week during your entire Mm. program so my first year I was doing clinical work. In other words, I was doing stuff that was more uh, therapy-based and working sort of clinically with clients. In that setting, I knew that I was interested in the criminal legal system and sort of was interested in where social work and the criminal legal system might intersect. And so they placed me, um, I was at school in Philly, but I was living in Delaware. They didn't have a lot of field placement options in Delaware, but they were trying to find me something where I wouldn't have to travel, you know, an hour each way every day for my placement. And they said, hey, okay, we can't really find anything, but there's this woman who is a a clinical social worker and she has her own independent practice. Uh, 
you can work with her. And my first day of that job, my supervisor, Stacy said, my practice is sort of split in half. Half of my caseload is primarily made up of women who are survivors of intimate partner violence and abuse. The other half of my practice are folks, mostly men, who have been convicted of sex offenses and are often mandated as part of their treatment to go to therapy. And she said, we can build your field placement however you want. If you want to only work with the the women and the victims of violence, we don't have to have you work with the other folks at all. And I said, well, I'll give it, you know, I'll give it a shot. I didn't think that that sounded like something I wanted to do, but I thought I would try it. And I went to group once with uh, some of the guys that were on the sex offender registry. And I, after that meeting was like, I only want to do these sessions. Um, and that year was incredibly meaningful to me because very much like we're talking about now, it was another population that often gets portrayed terribly in the media and sort of gets flattened in a way that's really mm. harmful. Uh, and so I really, really appreciated working with them. And in my second year, the field placement they found me in Delaware happened to be with a clinical social worker doing the job I do now. And it was not until I got there for my first day that she said, oh yeah, by the way, I only do death penalty cases. Is that okay? And I was like, yeah, I think that's fine. <laughs> um, and so I loved that job even more and sort of got this job here in Kansas City right after I finished graduate school. So if if we may uh, talk a little bit more, because we've we've talked about like, I didn't know a lot of this and you're saying some of that is by design and mm-hmm. clearly we're uh, centering this around an episode of television that seems like it ticked off some some boxes in the good uh, column. But I would love to hear more from you about the misperceptions of the process and um, maybe other places in media that we have seen those um, because clearly we all have such a, a clear idea of what we've seen um, on on TV, in movies, et cetera, over the years. Yeah, I think it is really interesting because as I was sort of uh, looking back over this after I had reached out to you all, I found something very interesting, which is that when we think about the way incarcerated folks are often portrayed in media, whether that be local news or maybe even especially insidiously in things like our regular procedurals, folks in prison are often portrayed as being. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. 
So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Like I said earlier, violent and very dangerous and manipulative. And I looked at this article where this gentleman, he looked over the way that prisoners are portrayed in television shows. He focused specifically on Oz and Prison Break, which were late 90s and mid 2000s, respectively. And he talked about the way that Oz was sort of the first show in the U.S. that was set entirely inside a prison. And it was really praised at the time for its realism, which I'm putting in scare quotes. (laughs) And really what they meant by that was, wow, this show is incredibly violent. There is so much violence and we're seeing so much violence. This is really real. Uh, (laughs) And interestingly, it's a show where a lot of the violence was prisoner on prisoner. There was Mm. not, or it was prisoner on corrections officers, right? We didn't necessarily see a ton of corrections officers being violent towards the folks that were incarcerated. And Prison Break, even though it takes place largely outside of the prison, he found that when they would come back within the walls of the institution, These people were being characterized as, I want to read his direct quote, savage, often psychopathic deviants. What this guy did for the second half of his study was talk to people who had been incarcerated. And while Mm. they did agree that they had seen and experienced violence when they were in prison, they felt like these shows typically make the violence seem significantly more sensationalized and sort of inevitable. And they talked about the fact that the prison system as a whole is an incredibly violent system. It's not a system that's meant to discourage violence. And so having these shows that sort of act like prisons are a neutral facility and the people in them are incredibly violent is really problematic. And they, Mm -hmm. he also found talking to these folks that the kinds of stuff that don't get shown on TV is sort of the incredibly repressive nature of being in prison and the amount of surveillance that you are under when you are in prison, poor nutrition, lack of educational opportunities, these issues that they said in a lot of cases felt more important than the issues of violence in their day-to-day life don't really get talked about because they're not as flashy and they're not as exciting. Um, And frankly, because our policy sort of directly mirrors public sentiment, And if we keep showing people that prisons are the only way that we can keep, we can keep ourselves safe, right? The prisons are barely containing these people is sort of how these shows Mm. play out. Mm -hmm. Um, And I looked at another article where a guy examined five films about the death penalty. And he sort of talked about, my initial thought was, I'm not used to seeing death row, uh, people who are housed on death row portrayed with as much humanity as Brad Dorif gives this character. And mm-hmm. this, this gentleman, uh, he wrote an article called muted message, sort of criticizing Hollywood's uh, portrayal of death row. And his critique is really that we have these films that portray people at who are on death row in one specific character as being sympathetic. And then you get to the end of the movie And you feel badly that that person was executed. But the movies don't actually take any sort of jab at the system as a whole. It's really just interested in this one person. Mm -hmm. And we see this Mm -hmm. a lot now sort of in a lot of the uh, 
a lot of the true crime media and activism is really focused on people who are on death row who are innocent. And I don't want to minimize that that is a significant issue. But again, if we're only focusing on the people that are innocent, you don't have to interrogate the larger system. You don't have to worry about the people who are on death row who committed the crime, but that doesn't mean that we have the right to to kill them. That's that's just it too. It's like the black and white nature of of everything, especially in media and especially in like the way that our brains are taught to look at it. That like so I think so many people come to the conversation around death row as, well, we shouldn't have that because what if you're innocent? And that's the end of the thought process. Mm-hmm. And and I'm not I'm not belittling that. I'm definitely someone who has like walked that same thought process. Well, how could you do that? Was clearly the like the justice system is flawed. So like there are innocent people there, but it doesn't go that those those extra steps, not one extra step, but many extra steps mm-hmm. to say, why do we think that it that this is a solution for anyone who has done anything and and who who can really draw those lines, um, which I think goes, I mean, clearly it goes so beyond just the death penalty in prisons. You saying prisons are looked at or are like portrayed as neutral and violence happens uh, inside of them just made me think of like, well, right. Like, yeah, like the, <laughs> like the, like our country is neutral. Right. Mm-hmm. And there are just some people who are people really who are violent shitty. here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we don't really know why, but because like clearly everyone just has a these... roll of the dice. Yeah. yeah just, uh, yeah. Well, and this episode does a really interesting thing too, that when I was looking at this article about portraying folks as innocent and I was like, well, in this episode, it it doesn't feel at any point like Boggs is, I mean, he's pretty clearly admitting that he's guilty. So innocence is not on the table. And I think it's interesting. And this would maybe be my one trouble, one of my troubling things with this episode, that the only value that he is given as a person is because he can help them solve a crime and he can maybe help Scully talk to her father, right? He doesn't have any inherent worth as a person outside of what he can do for other people. And once they get what they need from him, neither of them seem particularly bothered by the fact that he was executed. And that that part really sticks for me watching this episode in light of having my job. You know, the first couple of times I watched this show, I didn't have this job. Uh, but I, I find the the scene of his execution so brutal and then to have them Mulder and Scully just sort of be okay is a really jarring uh transition for me to go from one to the other but I wonder how that how that struck you all as people that are not as sort of swimming since you guys are not sort of swimming in this water all the time, what does that sequence feel like, the execution sequence for you? It felt pretty brutal to me. I mean, it, it felt, again, I have no idea what it looks like. So I didn't have the context to say like, this seems sensationalized, but the way that the like tablets are dissolving and the way that the whole, that whole scene is cut just felt v- like very, very violent um, to me. And and I think part of this is because maybe we've had conversations over time that that have helped at least my brain get a little bit away from black and white. I definitely 
wanted to understand more of this guy's history, which maybe isn't a complete connection to like how Mulder and Scully were at the end, but it definitely felt to me like, well, why did this man, like, why did he kill his whole family over Thanksgiving dinner? Like what happened there? That's a huge thing. And for Mulder to, I mean, and I think that that is not uncommon, right? For Mulder to just be like, there are some people who are just bad. Yeah. Was like, oh, I, d- I didn't like it. So that those were like my impressions. Um, first watch, Jenny. I thought that Boggs's walk from his cell to the room where it happens was like, I found it like very arresting, and I also thought it was humanizing to to me I mean that was my read to see him you know recoil almost in pain mm-hmm. like when confronted with sort of like the vision of these people looking at him and judging him like I thought that was a a very powerful choice mm-hmm. um yeah and I should be clear to your point Kristen that I don't think any states at this point are still using gas chambers. So that has not, that sort of the specifics of that do not look like what I understand it to look like now. Most states are using lethal injection. Um, Although, and I think this is another thing people don't know a ton about unless you're sort of seeped in this all the time. But there are now, there have been several uh executions by lethal injection that have gone very poorly in a lot of states i think Mm -hmm. people are sort of starting to understand we keep trying i say we as you know the united states keep trying to find ways to do this that look humane and as it Mm. is becoming sort of challenged that like this is also you know i think it'd be really interesting to do this episode now because i think i don't know that people have the same response to seeing someone killed by lethal injection because it looks like Mm -hmm. a very clean medical procedure that is, Mm -hmm. you know, probably fine, which, you know, I say all that with lots of sarcasm, (laughs) but we are, we are now at a place that states are trying to bring back things like the firing squad because the lethal injection is not, are not working. And it just makes me wonder like how, how much we will, con- why do we continue to fight when it's like, it just seems like we can't do this actually. It seems like yeah. we cannot do this in any way that is fair or just. So maybe we should stop. Maybe we should stop. <laughs> well, and I, and like to, I think, uh, highlight Jenny, what you were saying. I, I had the same response to the walk that you did. I thought that that, as well as all of the parts of the, of the episode that gave us insight into what he was experiencing were really beautiful and powerful. And, and this whole conversation has really made me think more too about, cause, because I was, I was jarred by the, the death itself, the execution itself, mm-hmm. that scene. And it, it, you know, to your point, Sophie, that Mulder and Scully are just kind of like, okay, and now we're moving on to the next episode. It's interesting because it do- is like, does the episode have a stance on the death penalty? Because I could Mm -hmm. see, right, you know, making the execution scene violent and hard to watch makes a lot of sense if you are intentionally saying, hey, this is really fucked up that we do this. 
But I, at the end of the episode, am kind of left with that question of, Mm -hmm. is there a conversation happening here at all about the ethics of the death penalty? I feel like my first gut reaction is like, oh, kind of feels like the writers are trying to say something either positive or neutral about the death penalty and the director, David Nutter, is trying to say something Mm. uh, in opposition I don't necessarily think that's really accurate. I think, you know, my brain is conflating um, Morgan and Wong with Mulder and Scully, two FBI agents (laughs) who, you know, are slightly more invested in the the criminal justice system uh, than two guys writing an episode of television. Mm. Um, I'd say that Mulder feels very, very positive about the death penalty. But I feel like what David Nutter is telling us uh, through his visual choices and his directorial choices uh, is something altogether different. He's trying to, I feel, instill, you know, Mm. instill in the viewer that this is like ghoulish and ghastly and wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, I was just going to say to your point, Jenny, I can't remember the exact quote, but there's something that Scully says earlier on in the episode too, sort of talking about painting this man's execution as a righteous thing. Like if he did Mm. this thing, then he deserves this act. And it was, uh, Mm. I have seen this episode a couple times since I started the work that I do now. And it's been, I love Mulder and Scully so much. And it's so hard to watch this episode, especially knowing that Scully didn't go and that presumably he had no one there, you know, Mm. um, which is so, I have not yet been in the position of witnessing an execution. I had a client ask, but it turned out that what this client needed more was for me to be with their mother. So that's what I did. And the mother Mm. did not attend. Um, But, you know, being present at an execution is something I have thought about a lot because it is a possibility that a client might ask. And that's obviously an incredibly personal decision. Um, But for her to not go and leave him thinking that she was going to be there really makes me upset with her. I guess it's not surprising for her character, but it makes me sad. Yeah. I'd like to think of Dana Scully as more evolved and more thoughtful but again she is uh an fbi agent uh she was raised by a military father there's like a lot a Mm -hmm. lot of like a very specific kind of structural yeah world view well, and she's so young i mean that's you both she's very have the the full context of what will become of Scully but for me I'm like she's just she's so small that I don't have expectations for her to get to these places at this point you know it's like her her mm-hmm. brain is just being cracked open right now so and look at all the things she hasn't been able to unlearn just in the episodes you have seen Kristen about <laughs> like what she perceives as true it's <laughs> <laughs> a very solid point <laughs> That shit is baked in. <laughs> you need to get out the hydrogen peroxide oh, and a steel scrub brush. <laughs> um, 
Sophie, are there things that that we did not ask you, things that you want to talk about um, related to this episode or um, your work in general? So I would just, I think this is actually a lovely place to end because this is sort of the one thing that I like to leave folks with. This is a part of my work that is not part of my job description at all, but it feels really important to me as someone who does this work to talk about what this what these spaces actually look like and mm. who these people really are mm. um a, in large part because i think so many people even folks that live in states who are actively executing just don't they don't know it's happening they don't pay attention to it it doesn't it's not typically something that makes lots of big news stories again unless you're already sort of dialed into the activism part of it and so it has always felt really important to me to try to make this feel personal to people because I think it's most people in the U.S. never have to think about the death penalty or actually consider what it looks like. Uh, and so I just wanted to end with this idea that Sister Helen Prejean, who is a huge hero of mine, in her book, Dead Man Walking, talks about this study that happened in 1975 where two fellows at Yale Law uh, School spoke to folks about their feelings on the death penalty and then gave them some information about how capital punishment actually works in the United States. And they found that people are less inclined to favor the death penalty if they are given, quote, even minimal information about it. And so I would encourage you if this resonates with you at all, there are so many fabulous resources online. Um, Death Penalty Information Center has tons of fact sheets and articles and resources. They also sort of keep a tally of upcoming executions and past executions. They are a great source of information. If you're looking to get involved, Death Penalty Action tracks all of the executions in the country and tries to rally people to call governors, call parole boards, send letters, do things that can try to help. And finally, um, if you are in a state where the death penalty is active, chances are there is a local or state organization. So out here in Missouri, we have Missourians against the death penalty. I think in almost every state, it's usually Floridians against the death penalty, mm -hmm. Texans against the death penalty. So if you don't know if there's an execution um, if executions are on the book in your state, it's worth finding out. And I just think that this is, this is a horrific system that is allowed to continue churning because nobody wants to look at it and nobody has to look at it. Yeah. And so I would really, really encourage folks to sort of, um, educate yourselves and get involved, um, because, you know, these people, I have lost four clients and I loved every one of them very dearly. And it's, it is very, it's very hard. And I think we don't talk enough about the fact that when you execute a person, you're not just hurting that person. You are creating new victims in their families and friends and the people who care about them. Thank you for the work that you do. Uh, first and foremost, uh, it is 
incredibly powerful and resonant. And I'm sure that you've made a huge impact on the lives of so many people um, in that sort of ripple that you're talking about. Um, and thank you for being here with us. I, I think I think I speak for both Jenny and I in saying that this is truly the best part of doing the work that we do uh, is getting to have conversations like these that take something you know, that was created decades ago and then use that as the lens to look at things that are really important right now. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. At Kraus, Captain Pfluger sent me to help you out. Joe Antonetti, welcome to the basement sweat box of the detective unit. The Kingsbury Run murders, a.k.a. the Cleveland Torso murders, our very own Jack the Ripper. You think he's still out there? If he's not dead or locked up, why'd he stop killing? Or did he? Who was on the phone earlier? A detective. He wants to pick my brain about an old case. There's another body over here! Holy mother of God. Why do you think we asked you to come all the way back to Cleveland, Pike? It's either Elliot Ness you'll want to know about, or it's the butcher. Let's start with the butcher. You were there at the beginning. September 5th, 1934. You remember the exact date? I remember every damn detail about the butcher case. And we want to hear about Gus Frayn. I need your help, Detective Pike. Will you tell anybody in the future about what's about to happen will need to be a fabricated narrative. Frayn's long buried. So is Elliot Ness. Yeah, but I didn't shoot him. Crooked River is available wherever you listen to podcasts.